the EU has fleeced billions of dollars from, you know, primarily American internet companies for making up new rules and then enforcing them retroactively and like fining retroactively. So that just really grinds my gears. Friends, welcome to the Navig Gaming Podcast. This is the Roundtable, and I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navig, and Matt Dian, lead product manager at EA and Navig content contributor. And yes, that is right. You heard the Navig Gaming Podcast and not the Metacast because we rebranded. We talk about gaming, so gaming should be in the name. Absolutely. And salutations, everybody. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> Is this your continued attempt to be really happy saying hello, Aaron? Well, I think ever since you told me that my hellos weren't enthusiastic, I've tried, but all it's done is just amounted to it being increasingly awkward, and I don't know what to do about it, but I'm still still trying. I, I love awkward, so this is great. And you brought back your donut hat, which makes Absolutely. me extremely happy. YouTube exclusive donut hat. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, also, you know, for you and for our listeners, happy 2023. I think it's going to be a wonderful year. And I, you know, we're all here for each other. Enjoy making games, playing games. And yeah, we'll be with you every week. So actually, new year, new opportunities and adventures. We're on the lookout for roundtable panelists. So if you're keen on joining us and, you know, it's something you'd be interested in, you can look at the Navic job board to find more of a description and reach out to us. Aaron and Matt, do you like being roundtable panelists? I do. I recommend. Yeah. It's fun. Gives you a good chance to dig deep into a lot of things. Stay on top of the industry. And, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, you have good conversations. Um, everyone is friendly. And I've met all sorts of interesting, smart, nice people through the process. So I've very much enjoyed it. Oh, no was not an option, but this still was so amazing. Yeah, so if <laughs> if you're curious to know more, uh, reach out to the job board. And then, Matt, you did an amazing Arknights deconstruction, which oh, I really you. like because I'm playing Nero Cloud, which is kind of similar. Mm. I was just wondering off the top of your head if you have a favorite takeaway from when you were writing the piece. Um, yeah, I don't know if it was one specific thing. Um, it was a new game to me. Uh, so it was, I think my favorite part of it really was kind of like the unexpected, um, rabbit holes it took me down doing the research. Like I, I learned all about like anime and gotcha games, which is sort of a, an area that I never really looked into before. Uh, obviously familiar with gotcha as a monetization mechanic, but sort of the like genre and kind of culture around gotcha games specifically and like character collectors that was really interesting to me to learn more about and understand how that kind of connects to the like anime subculture and, and things like that so anyways i'm giving away a lot of the goods in the deconstruction but it was very interesting for me no i found it interesting too and it's in um the full decons in our Novic pro service but even just for those who, who don't know what arknights is it's like a it's a tower defense mobile game that is not like any other tower defense game you played before that has a ton of rpg mechanics and you know in-depth narrative and all that kind of stuff so it's just like a really unique kind of game to analyze and kind of think about like oh if this could be done with tower defense 
maybe it could be done in other areas we're not thinking about too. But anyways, yeah, yeah it was just a really fun game to a really interesting, to learn about. really interesting genre mashup and like expansion of the tower defense genre. Uh, I think, yeah, we'll get started with the first year's updates. And Aaron, you're, you have the first slot. Fantastic. And this is, I mean, this is the first roundtable of the year, but, you know, still a little bit happened at the end of this, at the end of December. And one of the things that happened at the, the end of last year was that uh, China's National Press and Publication Administration approved and issued licenses for 44 imported games. And this is notable because it's the first time in 18 months that an imported game has been approved in China for roughly a year or so. There was a freeze altogether of approvals, both imported and domestic games. But after a few months of starting to approve domestic games, the, the regulator finally got around to, to imported games. Um, of course, many of these imported games are still very much connected to the, the big Chinese publishers like Tencent and NetEase because international companies usually need to partner with local companies in China to both localize the games and just have a chance of, of winning in China. And this is also notable because even when China was recently giving licenses for domestic games, it largely skipped over the biggest publishers and instead prioritized the smaller developers for whatever reason. And if you look at the approvals in this list, there there are some notable ones. For example, Valorant is on the list, which obviously made by Riot, which is you know owned by Tencent. Uh, and it also seems like Japanese and South Korean companies saw a chunk of approvals too. So Nintendo's Pokemon Arceus, I think that's how I say it, um, got approved. And you know, NetMarvel, NCSoft, Krafton, Kakao Games, and Dev Sisters, which are all South Korean companies, they all got approvals too. So in general, this is a really healthy change of pace. In 2022, China granted licenses for 462 games, which is a pretty major step backwards from um, 2021 when they approved 755. And of course, there was a huge freeze in the middle of all of that. Um, but the end of the freeze and the momentum of approving both domestic and now imported games, it's a good sign for the new future, at least. And, you know, of course, if we've learned anything about China, anything can change. The government's mandates and rules and priorities around various industries and views towards gaming very well may ebb and flow. And this might not be the permanent state of things for who knows how long. Um, that's what you sign up for when interfacing with China's game market. But for now, pretty good progress. Uh, South Korean games had not been approved since 2017, was it? Was it I don't time? know the specific date. But yeah, it's been, a, yeah. it's been quite a while. Do you know what changed? That why now? I have absolutely no clue. Um, I think in the... That regulatory body, the the name I, I just mentioned, the national board, um, I think they were going over like a pretty huge like internal restructuring of just how they were operating is how I understand it. Um, and also just it coincided with China just creating more regulations around gaming in general, around, um, you know, the rules around minors playing for only certain numbers of hours and on certain days. And it seems like in general, China was just pushing for people to pay less attention to 
gaming and even just like even with startups, just less like internet startups and kind of refocus more on what they view as vital industries and more vital uses of people's time. And I'm that's just my general sense. So I could be wrong on some of that. I don't think anyone fully understands, you know, the the inner workings of these government agencies, especially from from so such afar, like where we are. Um, but I think there's a few pieces at play there like that. That's kind of my take on it too. Aaron is like, I would love to try and draw trends or conclusions from this news, but I feel like the approvals process in China is so closely intertwined with politics. Um, and that's just something I, you know, I don't feel qualified to comment on as a, as a Westerner and like not, not a close China observer. Um, so like, you know, I've seen some commentary. It's like, well, this is good for South Korean games because they haven't been approved for a long time. Or, you know, we're going to talk about NetEase a little bit later. Like maybe this is good for NetEase getting some of their games approved. I don't know. I don't want to read too much into any one particular angle. It's just like, let's just kind of see how it evolves. Okay. Yeah. What's the next update, Matt? Sure. So um, I have a quick update on YouTube uh, policies uh, around streaming. So they, they recently um, updated their policies around what videos can and cannot be monetized. And this um, policy change is causing a bit of an uproar because basically it's caused a bunch of gaming content to be demonetized, uh, which is one thing. But the what's sort of compounding it is that they didn't really give the creators any notice. They just you know, took the monetization away from a bunch of their videos without really telling them, uh, which is not great. Um, so the the policy change is largely around um, things like violence, profanity, sexual content, um, things of that nature. And there's a lot of sort of intricacies to the rules, for lack of a better term. Like there's a lot of talk about you can do this outside of the first 15 seconds of the video, but you can't do it in the first 15 seconds of the video. Otherwise it's going to be demonetized. Um, when you think about what they're, um, what they're cracking down on profanity and violence, this has um, bubbled up quite a bit in gaming videos around particular genres of games. So I saw some coverage around streams from the Callisto protocol, which is a, a recent survival horror game from Crafton. These videos were getting demonetized. And if you think about survival horror games like that or Resident Evil or what have you, I mean, there's a lot of gore. There's a lot of violence in these videos. And I mean, it, it, it kind of like makes it very difficult to create content for certain genres. Think about shooters, for example, like the whole extraction shooter genre, Escape from Tarkov and whatnot. It's kind of like you know, there was a, a recent Novik report on this, Novik Pro, shout out on extraction shooters. Like, this is a this is a thing that is happening, right? But the whole, like, one of the key mechanics of extraction shooters is looting loot from dead bodies. And, like, that is explicitly against the, the policy that, um, that Google and YouTube have outlined. So, um, you know, I don't know that there's been a resolution, but the, the TLDR is, like, not great communication from Google and YouTube on the change of policy and kind of an unclear future for the content creators that are um, focused on these genres that are primarily impacted. We've seen Twitch losing some ground in terms of being the leading gaming streaming platform. Do you think this might renew their advantage and see creators move back to Twitch or even to other platforms? Because this affects some fairly you know, staple games that players love to watch streaming of? 
Could be. Um, honestly, I, I'd have to look into you know the latest on Twitch because my recollection was there was some um, some pushback on the royalty splits or like the the um, revenue splits with Twitch and. Um, obviously, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like the creators are getting pinched on multiple sides right now, and they're going to have to find the platform that works best for them. Maybe it's like TikTok or something. I don't know. I don't think it's great for YouTube. Um, maybe they'll update it because um, this feels like a big chunk of creators to be alienating. Um, and as you point out, you know, Twitch and others are competing you know, strongly in the gaming space. So I don't know. I, I don't think it's great for YouTube, but there's a lot of shifting dynamics and uh, I, I'm honestly not sure. I'm yeah, not I don't think it'll be a big deal. You don't yeah, think it will I, be a big deal, Aaron? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, obviously it's not not great, um, but Switch itself has had its its fair share of um, issues as well. And, you know, the bottom line is that it's just hard to you know, like really set rules around and manage like really complex, big platforms like this when there's always people trying to skirt the rules somehow. And, um, you know, the meta is always changing and you have to deal with regulations that can also change too, which can also be country by country. It's just, it's just hard. But I do think Matt was right just to call it the communication piece. Um, and we also know that YouTube gaming specifically has newer leadership. I think they have seen a bit of an exodus. I know Ryan White used to lead. He's now the CEO of Polygon, and I think uh, he's not the only one to to have left. Um, so, if anything, this is maybe just a lesson to the new leadership of like, hey, communication with your creators really matters. At the end of the day, that's like the backbone of everything that you are. So, hopefully, it's more of a like a lesson learned on the communication front than more of like a crack in the foundation that is a sign of more to come. Um, but YouTube still has pretty incredible advantages as being the place where you can watch streams live and it's just where like all of the content is going to be stored anyways, which Twitch can't really compete with. So YouTube is still in a pretty phenomenal position in my opinion. And additional to YouTube, I believe this announcement uh, preceded the other announcement about monetization changes to monetization of YouTube shorts. I believe they're going to implement an ad revenue share with the creators, which will be an extra advantage with bringing creators from TikTok to YouTube shorts and also changing how you can become part of the creator program of, of YouTube. I actually thought before they demonetized this kind of content, the, that the creators had to accept the term, the new terms and conditions by a certain date. So I'm, yeah, I'm quite surprised that they announced it and then immediately started affecting the monetization. Yeah. I mean, the, the coverage I was seeing was um, some of the creators were saying even videos they had made years ago were getting demonetized with no notice and they're just kind of caught off guard. Well, I don't know if this is a big update or not. It's an update I'm excited about PS VR two, Aaron. And I'm, am I going to be excited about buying this? Maybe. I mean, it's launching soon, so this is a bit more of a forward-looking um, update um, because it launches next month on February 22nd. It was, and just as a reminder, the PSVR 2 was announced in November, and honestly, I think it looks it looks pretty cool. Um, so, so yeah, as a as a player, Maria, you you might enjoy it, um, and just sort of as a, a refresher. Um, for everyone. I mean, the PSVR 2 obviously has improved specs over its predecessor. Uh, it has superior resolution per eye, a wider 
uh, field of view angle. It has several cameras for movement tracking, including eye tracking, uh, which is an innovation we don't see everywhere, including such as in the, the Quest right now. So that's pretty cool. And the the game lineup also looks pretty decent so far. Horizon Call of the Mountain is probably going to be pretty good and is the flagship launch exclusive. Uh, also, the dark picture switchback VR is another exclusive, and that, that could be interesting. And naturally, the, the headset will support a bunch of hits that are already on the Quest, and we'll see games like Resident Evil Village and No Man's Sky be adapted for the headset too, which... Um, you know, it just could be a, a new, interesting, and fun way to play some of some of these games as well. Um, the just for some stats, the original PSVR sold about five million units, which is roughly a four percent attach rate to the PS4. Um, and so it did okay, but not really that great. It wasn't really like a mainstream hit, really. And I would expect the PSVR2 to perform somewhat similar to that. It is a better device, and I'm sure we'll be, you know, have a better immersive experience with more games. But there still are a handful of things holding it back, in my opinion. One is the price point. It's selling at $550, which is $150 higher than the Quest 2 and the original PSVR. And it's more expensive than the PS5. So um, consumers will have to pay up quite a bit to get this device, which... um, We'll see how that goes, especially heading into more of a recessionary environment. Um, It's also not super clear what exactly new players can expect to come to the platform in terms of games over the next few years. It seems like PlayStation is supporting it to some degree, but I don't know how much they're really reinvesting in new content yet. And I'm sure that'll somewhat depend on the level of adoption and engagement. Um, And then lastly, it still is a tethered device and has to be hooked into the PS5 to be played. And that naturally reduces flexibility. Like I can even just say for myself that like, I don't know if I can realistically use (laughs) this device in the space that I have if it has to be tethered. And I have a Quest 2 and like can use that somewhere else. Um, So that that might hold it back a little bit as well. So I mean, really, it's still it still is early for VR. This probably won't have a huge impact on the PlayStation ecosystem um, anytime soon. And I think Sony knows that. And really, the way I think about it is that keeping up with VR, keeping up with VR, is Sony's way to stay in the long term VR race. And maybe once the time for more mainstream adoption comes, they'll be one of the few companies that's ready to go. Already has their experiences. Um, um, you know, lessons learned from the past and has a history of knowing how to make these games and exclusives better. But, you know, all of that said, it still looks fun. So probably not the biggest impact, but if you're into VR and you like some of these IPs and franchises, I'm sure you'll have a great time. Yeah, the Horizon world is extremely beautiful and immersive. So I can see that driving a lot of fans of of that franchise to, yeah. you know, buy it, experiment. Maybe it'll be their first VR experience. I think you really hit the nail on allowing studios to start gaining the knowledge and the experience in designing VR games because it is different to designing, you know, just a screen-based game. You have to know how to fully immerse a player. You know, I you know I develop games and I can't even imagine how to start and get knowledge to do that really well. Yeah, it'll be exciting. And then we have Apple 
who during the fall of this year is meant to release the Reality Pro AR VR device that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, we'll see. I, I don't know if that's really going to happen yet. I'm a little skeptical, although I would love for it to happen. That would be amazing. But yeah, Horizon could be cool. I haven't looked into that game specifically, but just like the thought of like the whole bow and arrow experience mm. in VR uh, and obviously like big robot dinosaurs, um, yeah. that that could be pretty, pretty cool. So yeah, fingers crossed that's good for everyone. Yeah. I play Beat Saber just to feel like I'm in Star Wars. So a bow and arrow sounds really cool. Yeah. Okay, well, we were talking about NetEase briefly during the China licensing of international games. Yeah. So Aaron, do you want to kick that off? Um, So yeah, this week it was announced that NetEase has acquired Skybox Labs, which was founded in 2011 and is a Canada-based co-development studio that has worked on games like Halo Infinite, Minecraft, and Fallout 76. They also used to work on the Age of Empires, Age of Mythology games, which is pretty cool. Those were some of my favorite games growing up. Um, And they made a couple originals too. And if you look closely, all of those top co-developed games are now part of the Xbox family. I have a feeling some of that is more, you know, just how the chips fell um, and not completely by design. Um, And I can't really say why someone like Xbox didn't scoop them up instead because of that. Um, given that tighter relationship. But uh, I think we can still go ahead and examine why NetEase might have wanted this acquisition and then maybe dig into a, a bit more of like NetEase's motivations in general. Um, and to start, it's pretty clear right now that NetEase is looking more to the West for revenue upside, especially given the volatility and tougher operating environment in China. Like we just mentioned, the volatility around the game approvals that's hard to predict and not completely in Um Companies, these companies own hands, um, and one way they're they're doing that, trying to get more of that revenue upside in the West, is by pursuing AAA games. And part of that strategy is acquisitions. For example, NetEase acquired Quantic Dream last year, which made the Detroit Human Detroit Become Human um, game. Uh, but it's also been setting up new studios. So, for example, it started Jackalope Games in Austin, Texas last year, which is led by an experienced MMO developer. NetEase also opened a studio called Jar of Sparks. Uh, and I'm blanking on where that's that's located, but it's also, I think, North America-based. Um, and Seattle. that's Seattle, okay. And that's led by um, Jerry Cook, who, by the way, was the head of design for Halo Infinite. So maybe there's some connection in there with that Xbox relationship. And NetEase has also opened like two or three Japanese-based studios too that I can see. And they might have done a couple, opened a couple more studios I didn't see in my quick scan. But that seems to be you know a strategy that they're very much leaning into. And so in general, I think we can say that NetEase is going to be scaling up AAA development and likely needs help, more resources in doing that. And acquiring a company like Skybox is a good infusion of flexible talent that not only is growing, but can be plugged into a range of projects over the coming years. Uh, I don't think that means that Skybox will operate exclusively with with NetEase. I don't think that's going to happen, but um, it'll probably take much more of a NetEase bent as all of these AAA studios start uh, to ramp up. Um, so, I mean, I want to talk about the China angle here a little bit more. Um, but before we go there, I'm curious if either of you have 
any other thoughts on this acquisition? Um, if you think what I said makes sense or there's other pieces at play here. Uh, I think it makes sense. I think um, certainly there's a competition for talent, talented developers. And my understanding of NetEase's intentions coming to uh, America, at least, is a desire also to um, bring their games to a Western audience or find ways to uh, make them more appealing to Western players. I know for a fact that this is something they're doing on the mobile side. I can't speak to you know the HD console side um, that Skybox might be working on, but I, I do know that this is a strategic priority for them. The additional angle I see is, I, I'm sure this acquisition was has had already started before the broken down contract with Acti- Activision Blizzard, but it could also just reduce the risk of their opera- operating model by bringing that talent and developing more games in-house instead of relying on those big publishing relationships to publish in mainland China. I think it's very interesting, the whole relationship between, you know, Mojang is owned by Microsoft and Skybox co-developed Minecraft, which NetEase is a publisher for in China. And now they do the acquisition. It it solidifies the rumor that potentially if the, the acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft goes through, that and that Ease could renew their relationship to publish the Activision Blizzard games in um, China. So we'll see. Ooh, it's a web of conspiracy theories, but all, all sounding very compelling. Um, well, I, let's go ahead and maybe zoom out a little bit. Um, I'm also you know, curious what you make of the increasing trend of Chinese publishers in general looking to the West for diversification through game launches, M&A, starting these new studios. And you know, as we've already kind of covered, it's understandable why this is happening, but I'm curious where where you think this is ultimately going, um, and how like impactful um, these you know Chinese backed games or studios are going to to be in the West. Obviously, Tencent is already the largest games company in the world, um, and part of that is because it's made a bunch of acquisitions across the world, and it's interesting to see Netties ramp up on that too. But um, just in general, when you look at these big Chinese publishers, where where do you think that influence is going from here? Is it just going to continue to rise? Is there a point it's going to taper off? Just curious how you all view that reality shaping out. Well, I, you know, I don't know how successful it will be. It's certainly um, something that Tencent has led the way on, as you mentioned. Um, I think there, there's a few things going on here. One is like wanting to... Um, Well, there's like political pressures, right? Like there was the crackdown on games within China and a desire to expand their business in other ways, right? If you can't expand within China, whether it's um, game approvals or the restrictions they put in place on minors playing games, um, well, you have to look elsewhere. And so that's where you see, you know, companies like Tencent and NetEase making these acquisitions overseas. So that makes sense to me. Certainly it helps to fill the pipeline as well uh, of games sort of hitting the market. Um, I think it's less clear how successful they'll be in, you know, reaching Western consumers. Um, I'm not going to say they can't do it. uh, Just that, like, I don't know. Let's just for like a thought exercise, like what was the last game that NetEase put out that really hit with Western players? Uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Maybe it's Diablo Immortal? Um, I don't know. That would have been my guess. Is, does Codev count? 
Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess where I would maybe push back a little bit just in thinking about it is that like for a lot of these like new studios that they're building, they are Western studios, right? Like these mm-hmm. these aren't games that are made in 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 China. These are made by experienced, you know, developers and studio leads of successful AAA games in the West, and so it's sort of a diversification of talent on that that mm-hmm. front too. That makes me think about that. That's fair. I, I guess the next question then is like, how autonomous are these studios from the mothership? Um, and I think that um, some of that is cultural. Some of it is um, business specific. Uh, I can't really comment on like how NetEase operates in that regard, but that would be like my next kind of big question is like, do these um, Western developers that they have brought in, do they have full autonomy to kind of do their own thing? I think that's kind of the way that Tencent has typically operated. They try and you know, leave the studios alone to do their own thing, you know, Supercell, Riot, whatever, like you guys keep doing your thing and we'll just mm-hmm. kind of cash the checks. Um, will NetEase take the same approach? I don't know. Yeah, the the way I look at it is that if their main market and know-how was to develop games for the the Chinese market for mainland China is especially with a slowdown of video game licenses, we've seen a crackdown not only on gaming, but also big tech in general. And mm. so the market, even though the market is growing, if you want to continue the growth that you expect with that, that size of company, you have to expand to new territories. And I think the West is very interested also in international investment and trying, well, foreign investment, trying to attract that so that they could have interesting conditions that appeal and make it, you know, easier to set up instead of, if we're looking at vice versa, if it were the West trying to create and set up studios in, for example, China. And so doing so allows, like you were saying, to gain that talent and the know-how. And if we look at developing games for mainland China, the console market is small. And so if you're already strong in terms of the mobile portfolio and your mobile market, then it's, I think it's, it just makes perfect sense to try to attract the West and make games from talent that knows how to develop, has experience and proven hits of developing games for that market. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's clear is, I mean, the objective is just to grow revenues in the West. Um, and there are different ways that they can go about that, right? Like, in many ways, it's easier to acquire. And in some ways, they are. Like, you know, we're talking about they acquired Skybox um, and they acquired Quantum Dream last year. Um, and, you know, that's something that all big gaming companies, you know, often try to do just because it's more capital efficient to buy what you know already works and is in place than to take a risk on building something from scratch that might not work. Um, but of course, there, you know, is more scrutiny when it comes to that. You know, just like geopolitically, especially if they wanted to make bigger acquisitions and buy, you know, like super notable brands. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that would land. Um, probably not great in the U.S. Maybe a little bit better in Europe, but I can't really say. Um, and so, you know, because of that scrutiny, you know, I can see why they might want to build more from more from scratch. Uh, I mean, not only is there less scrutiny when you basically start at zero, um, but there's also more upside if you succeed, right? Um, and so they, they could get higher ROI from that lens. I don't know if that's a huge driver behind their thinking, um, but it's interesting to see. But either way, it's pretty clear that they want to do this. And it is a pretty clear motivation for both Tencent and NetEase to 
find a way to succeed. So I suspect that um, you know these Chinese backed games still probably will grow in prominence a bit. Um, I think Matt, you're right to probably question whether it'll all work. My guess is no, um, but I still think the answer will be yes. And in some cases, and maybe some like pretty profound cases where we can see, you know, new hit IPs that stick around and last the test of time come from a lot of these, these newer, newer efforts. Um, and of course, from, you know, more of like a consumer lens, you know, it'll be branded as, you know, it came from this U S studio and it won't even really feel or seem as much like a, like a Chinese game, um, which, I don't know, you know, for consumers, I don't think they really care anyways. They just want to play awesome games. Um, but, you know, geopolitically, it could have an impact. And of course, longer term, geopolitically, who knows, like, where any of this goes. The world is a crazy place. Hopefully, you know, things stay peace, get more peaceful and stay peaceful. Um, and, um, you know, we could just enjoy great games, not have to worry too much about the geopolitics. But of course, that's kind of the 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 wrench that could get thrown in to, to any of this at any point in time. Um, so I don't know if we need to dig mm-hmm. too much into that, but if anyone has any final thoughts on any of this, that'd be cool. And maybe we can move on. Yeah. My, my final thought is I, I believe that these big gaming companies uh, based in China also come from a strong position of having a lot of networks and past relationships and experience that creates an advantage in making the best choices in terms of acquisitions. We look at NetEase, we look at Tencent, they're used to having co-development, uh, um, sorry, co-development partnerships for Western studios. And now they're coming from a position of advantage of knowing, you know, partners that they worked with, such as Skybox, and capitalizing on those past relationships to build now games internally. So the EU's European Data Protection Board ruled that Meta cannot require users to accept their personalized ads via their products, terms, and conditions. Now, we are going to be diving into GDPR, and I know that as soon as we say GDPR, people usually go, no, this is really boring, but I have a secret love for it, and so I'm going to try to make it exciting for you. (laughs) So to become compliant with the GDPR principles and regulation, the form of how Meta could resolve this issue is by having users in EU and UK have to consent by opting in or out of their personalized, sorry, their personal data being used for personalized ads. So all the cookie pop-ups that you usually see, Facebook would have to do that as well. Well, all meta products really. If we look at how much iOS's ATT affected meta, this is quite scary because ATT affects third-party data. And now we're talking about Meta losing the ability to deliver personalized ads based on first-party data, which is what they rely on. You know, what does your profile say? What pages do you engage with? What are your interests? And so this would also affect all platforms. And, you know, if we took it, take an example of ATT, I think the opt-in rate is about 35%. If we want to take that as a benchmark to opt-in for users, through this pop-up. Um, and I think to kick off the discussion, if we take a look at, even more importantly, the gaming perspective, this is quite scary because Facebook is still a principal UA channel for mobile gaming, especially for smaller studios that don't have the budget to do a mix of UA channels. And you know, Facebook not being able to target uh, players in EU and UK based on, for example, their demographics or their preferred activity 
we're already going through the the motions due to ATT. And so losing that ability to target such an important market personalized, I, I don't think I need to expand on how concerning that is. And Can I? I yeah. Oh, yeah, you go, you go. I actually just want to back up a bit and maybe just talk about the meta piece a little bit, just bigger picture, because to me, this is like absolutely absurd and makes no sense. And like time and time again, I can't help but roll my eyes at how these like these like EU bureaucrats work. Like, Maria, I don't understand how you have this secret love for GDPR. Like I, (laughs) I have a not so secret like hate, not necessarily for GDPR, but just like it just seems like these rules time and time again, they're just like boneheaded decisions. So let me just break down at a high level why why I think that is. And maybe we can ease into like what you're saying, where you wanted to take this specifically with games. Um, so, you know, this rule is worse than Apple's ATT policies, right? Because yours, as you were saying, Maria, with ATT, users opt in or out of letting apps leverage third-party data, Um and what the EU is saying here is that Meta is not allowed to use first-party data to serve ads without user opt-in. And that's, like, insane. Sorry, to serve per- personalized ads. They can still serve generic ads, but not personalized yeah. ads. Yeah, but that's that, even so, that still is, like, absolutely insane. Yeah. So, like, one, like, these platforms use first-party data already in their algorithms to provide, like, the core user experience in the first place. And apparently that's not an issue but it is with ads. So they can use first-party data to pick what normal content to show you, but not what like monetized content to show you. Like that line of logic, like drawing that line in the sand, um, separating those two points, like it defies logic. It makes no sense. Um, and second, like the GDPR rules did not originally provide clarity on this. And so for the EU regulators to retroactively fine a company for a rule, it is only now making clear is just like such clearly an unethical thing to do. And and sadly, like it's not new, right? The the EU has fleeced billions of dollars from, you know, primarily American internet companies for making up new rules and then enforcing them retroactively and like fining retroactively. So that just really grinds my gears. And and the third thing, like if we're truly honest with ourselves, is that rules like this hurt consumers. It makes their experience all over the internet worse and less personalized, which you know nearly everyone wants at least some things to be personalized. So, uh, I mean, I don't know how set in stone this is. Meta will probably try to push back. They'll roll out some kind of like opt-in, opt-out text, which at least they can control, right? Like with ATT, Apple like forced you know specific text, and you know these companies will be able to come up with their own. But you know if that appeal doesn't work then yeah, it means that the company will serve lower quality ads and it'll hurt their business until they maybe find some other way to innovate and maybe improve. But this is bigger than than meta, right? Like if the rules around using first party data for advertising truly exist, then it impacts anyone who serves ads. And like, I also just read that France fined Apple a few million dollars because their app store ads use first party user data uh, without asking permission. And like, there's so much irony in that, right? With like Apple getting fined for like privacy related things when they're like, when they're the most strict about it than anyone else. And so, um, you know, Amazon is going to get whacked and, you know, it'll probably have a, like an impact on on games too, maybe not as much, but like, anyways, it's just like, there's just so many pieces of this that are just absolutely 
ridiculous in my mind. Well, I, I want so, to push back a little bit because okay. this regulation and implementation of products that use first-party data, this is not new. And so any mid-sized, small-sized company in, in Europe, well, the EU and UK that's developing a product has to follow the GDPR rules. And you have very strict kind of text that you have to use and how you design the UX of the consent because you can't have the checkbox already pre-ticked and all of that. So, you know, Meta will have to follow some regulations of how they try to get the, the consent. And, okay, I'm going to put my, I work in the games industry hat off and put my, I live in the UK and I like my personal data to be private hat. If all of the mid-sized and small-sized companies have to find solutions on how to market their products by following this regulation, then the big tech companies should too. And I don't think this is new. I think Meta Meta was applying because there's were. some legal basis where you don't have to get consent. And Meta was using that their product is personalized and so it's a contractual necessity to have um, ads being personalized. But as are trying to sell you something outside of the platform and not based on the experience that you technically want to use to share and speak with your friends. Anyway, I'm going to put my yeah, gaming that, hat on. That didn't sell me at all, Maria. I'm, I'm sorry. Like, that, like, like Meta was following the rules that were set out by, by GDPR. But they like, were not. Well, this is were. what the... They absolutely were. <laughs> They're using like a, a, a legal basis that was ruled against. No, because... uh, that's, that's not true at all. Um, uh, they, they were following the rules <laughs> and the clarity around like using this first party data, like in their case for ads, like that is a new, that is a new thing that is starting to roll out across these, these bigger companies. And, it, and even still, like it makes no sense to separate between like what the content types are, if it's all still part of the same experience. But anyways, we don't have to, overly dig into into that but, but yeah there's a lot of pieces here that just don't make sense and the whole retroactive fining is the part that can, can i ask a clarifying question um as someone who knows much less about this topic than both of you do um when they talk about personalized ads through first party like how do you define an ad so for example if i am in like netflix or amazon uh and they're going to like personalize what they recommend to me um, based on my previous viewing data or previous products that I've looked at, like does that count as ads, even though it's within their, you know, ecosystem? No, because it's not trying to sell okay. you something. Yeah, it's not. You're not. You're not clicking on the ad to then buy something. It's not trying to influence your purchasing behavior. Well, I could see that being the case within Amazon. For for example, they have Amazon products that they may surface higher or lower than non-Amazon products within their True. marketplace. I'm not that deep of an expert. We need a DPO here, a data protection officer, according to the GDPR, to answer these mm. questions in in detail. Uh, yeah. It does feel weird that you can't use your own first-party data. Yeah, that's a line that shouldn't be shouldn't be. Crossed. I am pro-privacy, like, to be clear, but like, I don't but know. But that's I, like, GDPR. Is, is the, yeah. And these companies part that private. like... It is the tricky part that um, they can't um, use the terms and conditions anymore. They have to get like an explicit, you know, pop up or something that's yeah. like, here, I'm opting into this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so for 
there's diff- anyway, there's different types of data and for different uses, and you have to be able to opt in for the different uses. But pretty much every website product in EU and UK has to follow that you cannot personalize an experience, whether for marketing or for other reasons, until the user has opted in for you to use their historical data. You know, and personal data is very abstract. It's just anything yeah. that could be used to identify someone. And it's not an identifier like an email, but we're going into the weeds. Uh, but yes, GDPR is a thing in the EU and the UK and it has to be followed. And then I put my gaming hat on and this is very concerning. So I know, so Meta are going to appeal. Uh, we can conclude the, the topic. Yeah, Meta are going to appeal. And so we'll have to see what happens. They've, they've been given three months to become compliant. So yeah. Well, I just have a couple of thoughts. I mean, it hurts companies that rely on like more specific, like first party data to like deliver ads. And so someone like Facebook or Amazon that just has a lot of personal info to work with to make ads, especially um, personalized, like those are those are going to get hit quite a bit. And if we look at like the games industry, like, yeah, it's, it's going to be a net negative, but um, it's the kinds of ads you see in games usually, you know, you're not going to learn a ton about a person from like how they're playing just like a specific mobile game and that like specific first party data you get from it. So, you know, still net negative, but not as, as huge. But the other thing to just keep in mind about these regulations is that like they tend to hurt smaller companies more than they hurt larger companies because larger companies have the resources to, to one best comply um, and and two to like build workarounds of sort. And so you could say with like Meta's case that like all of their investments into AI could actually like create some type of workaround or competitive advantage here, where like without using like specific first party data as they're using right now to target ads, like they'll just be able to like leverage an AI to best like know what to put in front of people. I don't know exactly where you draw the line on what first party data or not is used in any of that, but just like smart AI and knowing what works or not um, could make a difference. But like, that's so expensive to do that smaller companies have no chance of doing that. So if anything, like if you compare the two, it is more of a net positive for large companies, competitive advantage, lead speaking, but still is a negative for everyone. I think you're right about small companies being really impacted. I think it's just another thing to add to the pile in terms of like difficulties around acquiring users as a game developer. Um, So yeah, if you're a larger company, you're going to have resources to maybe find workarounds, but also you're more likely to have IPs that are less reliant on user acquisition and can more easily get organic installs. Um, So yeah, I, I just, I chalked this up as another, uh, development along with ATT and other privacy regulations that make it more difficult for game developers and game publishers to get their games out to the players that they want to get them out to. Please move on. Okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> okay, Scary Enix. Let's go to happy news. Yeah, is this happy news? I don't know. It depends on your perspective. But um, so uh, so we're going to cover uh, Square Enix um, New Year's letter. So. For the last couple of years, at least, um, the president of Square Enix has put out this public letter where they talk about the macro conditions and they detail some of their uh, strategic initiatives for the year coming up. So 
uh, this particular edition, the 2023 edition of the New Year's letter, um, starts out talking about the, the macro environment and makes reference to uh, what they call their medium term uh, business plan, uh, which I'll get into in a moment, but let me take a step back for a second. The headline here is that the the letter has kind of reaffirmed the company's focus on blockchain gaming. And uh, I'll talk about a, a little bit like why, why they're going into that and what's, what's happening there. But they sort of work their way up to blockchain gaming in the letter. So they start with the macro conditions. They reference their medium term business plan, which um, uh, I went and looked it up from previous letters. The medium term business plan covered 21 to 22 22 to 23 and 23 to 24. So they are just uh, heading into the final year of their medium term strategy. And they have um, three sort of uh, uh, vectors for this strategy. One is strengthening their IP ecosystem. Two is taking on new domains, which is where we get into blockchain and some other stuff. And three is optimizing the business structure for the COVID world. This is their words. Uh, And so then they talk about the uh, the other big news for Square Enix this year, which was around, or this past year, which was around the divestiture of their studios in North America, Square Enix Montreal, Crystal Dynamics. Um, they sold those off to Embracer Group, and they attribute those sales to items number one, one and three in the um, medium-term plan, which was strengthening the IP ecosystem and optimizing the business structure for the COVID world. So they're talking about getting rid of some IPs that are maybe less uh, performant for them or less central to their strategy and focusing their resources on a smaller number of projects. Uh, and they're also looking to kind of revamp their publishing organization. So they talk a little bit in the letter about how they've got new chief publishing officers and they're trying to um, do this strategy called One Square Enix, which is like straight out of the, the consulting like naming book. Um, but um, I think this is actually, in my opinion, um, where we'll see most of the developments for Square Enix in the coming year. I think the news about blockchain gaming, which I'll get to in a moment, is like, it's it's kind of, um, it gets all the headlines, but it's really like not something we're going to see from Square Enix in a meaningful way uh, in 2023. This is my opinion. We can, we can debate this. So uh, the last thing they talk about in the letter, of course, that got all the headlines was blockchain gaming. This is where they hit number two, which is take on new domains. By the way, they talk about a couple of other things in new domains, which is AI and cloud gaming. They don't really mention this in the letter, but those are the other new domains as a company they're interested in exploring, but they're most focused on blockchain games. And so they mention in the letter, multiple, quote, multiple blockchain games based on original IPs under development. Um, So they're clearly focused on this. Uh, We at Navic have covered a lot of their moves. Um, They have uh, some, uh, I think, art NFTs coming out or like a collection NFT um, they've done some game projects. They're involved in, I think, the Oasis blockchain. So they have a number of um, kind of initiatives happening there. Um, so, you know, I think we can kind of debate as a group whether this is the right strategy for Square Enix. My take, as I mentioned, is that the blockchain stuff gets all the attention. But really, you know, the, the main thing, I think this letter is for it's for shareholders, it's for business interests. And so the main thing that we're gonna see as business observers is Square Enix revamping their publishing organization to try and streamline it and focus their resources on fewer projects at greater scale. Um, They talk a little bit about like, there's um, an inherent conflict between selling off 
um, these studios, but also like reinvesting in talent, which is something they talk a lot about. And like, how are they going to balance those two? And like, they mention it in the letter, but they don't really get into specifics around how they're going to square that circle. Um, I don't know. I think it's a multi-year thing. Like it's, it's very difficult to get rid of a bunch of developers and then say, oh, we're going to invest in our talent. Um, you know, so I, you know, as a, as someone who works in the games industry, I don't really buy that argument. Um, but I can see where they're coming from at least. So I threw a lot at you guys. I think two things to discuss. One, the um, streamlining of their publishing organization and two, the focus on blockchain. Do you think that this is the right approach for them? Do you think that my take on blockchain getting all the headlines but not actually being the the main takeaway from this letter is correct or am I off base here? It is interesting. I think that the the refocusing in general is probably a wise move. I mean, I think we know from some of what they sold off that those those assets were not really moving the needle in terms of profitability. And if anything, we're holding the company back. Um, and so, I mean, I don't really know the specific details there, but kind of um, kind of moving that aside and then taking, you know, the earnings from selling that to then reinvest into the the IPs and assets and opportunities that they think have the most um, upside that they already know succeed and can build out further. Um, primarily, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that for sure is going to be like the largest business driver over the next, um, few, few years. Um, I guess you could say maybe these two pieces maybe like tied together in some way. If part of their refocusing is also potentially on like the blockchain gaming elements, especially if they're doing, plugging that into their core IPs in some ways. And that's where I, I sort of go, Hmm. I honestly don't know, Um, just because I think it still is going to be a while before that next era of Web3 gaming, blockchain gaming, whatever you call it, really clicks, just because we still haven't really seen the successful case studies yet, at least not many of them. Um, There's still a lot of lessons to learn and best practices to nail down in terms of how to like really manage these economies in particular. Um, I don't know Square Enix, like how prominent they want to make this like tech and these kind of features in their games or if it's going to be more kind of like sink into the background there could be elements of like what like western gamers kind of feel and think about those implementations could be different from what um you know more eastern located players view towards it too so that'll just be interesting to see out but of course i think we have to realize that it could also take time too because even though this is a big company, they're not fully in control of their own destiny in the sense that, especially like when it comes to distribution, like app stores, they have a bunch of rules in place now that limit what's possible. Steam doesn't support, you know, blockchain enabled games. The consoles don't really yet either. And so, um, you know, they sort of have to wait for the ecosystem to be able to support it more fully too, before making those moves. Um, so yeah, I think I agree with you that we're not going to see like big actions there in 2023, but I do think we'll see some rumblings and it'll be interesting to learn more about what those plans are. And I think once we know that we'll be able to better judge, um, how we really feel about their efforts. Like what exactly are they trying to accomplish with the blockchain parts? Where are they plugging it in? Like, is it going to look like play to earn? Is it going to be something else? I don't, I don't think we really 
know yet. At least I, I haven't seen too much about that. Um, so those are my my quick thoughts on all of this. Something I found very interesting about how the letter was worded is about exploring how blockchain can be implemented for fun and new kind of games and not going down the already known, you know, types of how to how to use it. And also they entered into uh, a deal late December with Gummy Games. I think it was, you know, 7 billion yen or something. It's quite a significant investment in that relationship. And they already have uh, a relationship with Gummy Games and developing some some mobile titles, I think, for Final Fantasy. And so they're, they have a partnership with a mobile studio that is used to developing high-quality mobile games. They've made that investment into blockchain. They want to explore how to use it for fun. So I'm still I'm still hopeful that they are they are working with their longer term, their midterm strategy and not maybe next year. But seeing a game like Square Enix helping shape that segment of gaming, at least for me, it keeps me excited about the future of blockchain. Yeah, I I think I agree with both of you. Um... It will be interesting, given that this is the last year of their medium-term business plan, what the next medium-term business plan looks like. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the next business plan was like, yeah, we, you know, we really looked at blockchain hard and then we decided <laughs> we're going to go to AI, actually. And that, like, that makes more sense for us. I, I'm not saying they're going to do that, but like AI was one of their areas to explore. Um, the previous letter from, uh, from last year talked a little bit about um, uh, comparing like play for fun versus um, like, I forget what the term was. It was like contribute to earn or something like players who yeah. can participate in like a UGC style or contribute to their games in, in some ways and being incentivized uh, through tokens or, or other means uh, to do so is something that they're interested in and something they're looking at. But um yeah, I think you're right, Aaron, that this is like, this is kind of a rebuilding year for them. They're going to get rid, they've already gotten rid of these studios and IPs that they didn't want. They're going to streamline their organization as best they can. And they'll start to build towards a future that they think is going to be Web3 and, and they'll be hopefully prepared for. But as you rightfully point out, you know, nebulous, who knows what, what's going to happen there as platform restrictions and whatnot. So uh, it will be interesting. It could flame out spectacularly uh, <laughs> or it could be, you know, really successful for them. Yeah, and I on the in the letter too, it seemed like their strategy with the blockchain gaming part was twofold. Like one part was like building their own games, but the other part too was just mm -hmm. like the investments and kind of supporting the ecosystem and things around that. Yeah. I forget the specific wording that they use. So maybe this year, like we're probably not gonna see any big releases. They might have some smaller releases just to kind of test stuff out because you know, they need to learn, um, learn from doing too. But yeah, we could see mm -hmm. them make more interesting investments or become more prominent investors in that space. Who really knows? But I mean, if I were in their shoes, that's probably how I would be leaning. Like find the, find the talent and the really smart people out there who don't have the same baggage that you have in terms mm. of like what comes with your IPs and the expectations there and what just comes from what you need to move the needle as a really huge company um, and just support some of these smaller teams who are like figuring it out and, um, maybe, you know, however you structure those contracts or investments, like do it in a way that maybe like enables you to either acquire them later or just like deepen your partnership relationship with them later. Um, but yeah, finding ways to like invest intelligently in the ecosystem around you and finding ways that maybe if you succeed there, it could benefit your business in bigger ways going forward is um, maybe something interesting there. But again, 
lots of speculation here. We really have have no idea uh, what exactly they have up their sleeve or are planning, but it is interesting. They are a huge company with a ton of really awesome IP. So I'm so curious to see how that goes down. And we see a product, like I believe it's called Fractal, that's trying to create almost a Steam for blockchain games. And if I remember correctly, their M- Square Enix's ambitions included potentially developing a product that is also for distribution and selling mm. blockchain-related stuff. So it almost sounded like they were alluding to some kind of launcher or uh, yeah, the Steam for Square Enix. We'll, we'll have to see. And I remember when they made the announcement for Gummy Games, they used the expression of wow and earn, which was the combination, which is <laughs> oh, yeah. a combination of having a wow factor IP that really pulls people in and then, you know, the whole blockchain mechanism to earn. I'm, I'm just speculating on what it, what wow it sounds, but earned. it sounded cool. I don't know. It sounds cringe to me. Um. No. I actually <laughs> wow really earned. like one Square Enix. I, I like when wow. I read it, I was oh, like, really? yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't like either of those. <laughs> I think they're very, very consultant-y. Maybe yeah, the, the earn part. The earn part just needs to be left in the past. The wow part yeah. is fine. Like you always want to do that, but yeah, playing in order to earn, that's if if that's your strategy, no matter who you are, that's not really going to work for you, I don't think. Yeah, for me the okay, let's leave the let's park the one square enix name uh outside <laughs> the door. Uh, yeah. For me it just feels like a modernization of the organization as well. I believe they celebrated now 20 years of the Square Enix merger. And so yeah. it's a global market now. It makes sense to centralize your global operations instead of having this divide between the different parts of the of the globe. We see that really big game companies have that style of operations and it feels like the right direction to remodernize for another 20 years. Okay, well, I think we're going to wrap up this first episode. Yeah. What does a donut Wait. hat say? Wait, what? What? <laughs> What are you going to say, Aaron? No, I was just wooing. Oh, you were wooing. Oh. Yeah. It Sorry, was a pretty pathetic woo, but it was a woo nonetheless. Sorry. You can do it again if you want a second attempt. No, it's okay. Wow. Okay, <laughs> down. And I don't want to let it unnoticed how Matt used the square the circle expression in the square Enix topic. That oh, not intentional. But was it I'm not? I picked up on it. No, no, it wasn't. Oh, wow. I thought it was masterful. Okay, I'll take the credit. <laughs> Thank you. We can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, you can help us reach others by subscribing on your favorite platform. We love hearing from you, and it makes me really happy when you leave a comment on YouTube. So if you have something to say, say it in YouTube, and I'll go and read it. Uh, you can sign up to our free Navic Newsletter Digest, and we have other podcast content with the Crypto Corner and the interviews. So a lot to enjoy. And yeah, thanks for joining everyone and we'll see you again next week.